Welcome to the latest episode of the Intrafish Podcast, where we bring you insights into the most important seafood news headlines on Intrafish.com. I'm Drew Cherry, Editorial Director of Intrafish Media. I am joined by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. Hi, John. Hello. And by Reporter Kim Tran. Hello. Hi there. And Senior Reporter Dominic Welling in London. Hello. So it's been a very, very full and busy week for Seafood News uh, on Intrafish, and a lot of things have happened, particular in the pangaseous sector, and it's it's interesting to follow, and it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Um, Dominic, you've been covering this probably most closely, um, so just give us a little, kind of the quick tour of, of what happened and where we are now. Um, okay, well, I think it... Uh, basically, it all kicked off uh, with um, Carrefour Belgium uh, announcing that they were going to stop selling Pangasius um, in their stores. And that was in Belgium and then in uh, France as well. And it came as a bit of a shock, I think, to a lot of people because um, there had been no, in recent months anyway, there had been no real sort of negative media coverage or anything. So there was nothing really to preempt the decision this time. Um, so it was a bit confusing for suppliers and, and people like the ASC to sort of understand why such a major retailer had stopped selling it. And then in the days and weeks that followed that decision, they also, Carrefour stopped selling it in Spain as well and Italy. And then some other Italian retailers did the same. And then it sort of extended a bit into schools in Italy and Spain as well, I think. Um, so it sort of had a bit of a snowball effect. But yeah, it, it's, they're claiming their excuse um, or their reasoning for it was environmental impact of Pangasius farming, in, namely in Vietnam, but also other uh, Asian countries. And also the criticism that the species has sort of uh, incurred over the, the last few years. It also mentioned that there was, it was unable to secure an adequate supply of ASC certified um, Pangasius um, to meet its demands. Um, so that was their reasoning for it, um, which suppliers obviously didn't agree with um, uh, and were quite sort of put out by it. Um, I think uh, Nova is the main supplier for Carrefour Belgium, um, and yeah, I spoke with them, and they they were pretty unhappy about the decision, but um, mainly because they didn't they didn't think there was any basis for their allegations. Um, so yeah, I uh, also spoke to the ASC who. Uh, they reached out to you, right? And soon after your story was published, that was initiated yes, by, by them. Yeah, they got in touch because they wanted to put their side across, basically. Not um, that Carrefour was necessarily saying that there was something wrong with ASC certified Bangassias, but they, because the majority of it was sold, if not all of it was sold in the EU, is ASC certified. They wanted to put their two pennies worth in. Um, so, yeah, they said that basically that Carrefour's reasons weren't supported by facts. And, um, yeah, they, they sort of went on about how um, there needs to be a reality check in the, in the industry. And uh, Pangas is actually a very good choice of fish, but it's just got all this negative media attention over the years that um, it's really damaging it, basically. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I think what's concerning, too, is... is not so much Carrefour, uh, Carrefour's decision, although I'm assuming it would be difficult for them to not roll that out to other locations because I'm sure consumers are going to 
people start asking that question. Why it's yeah, other retailers, you mean, or other branches of Carrefour? Uh, other branches of Carrefour. Well, they already have. They have pretty much. They've done it in Belgium, Spain, and Italy, and France. So, I mean, they have other... I can't remember I was told, but they have others around the world, some in Latin America, I think, some in Asia. But she, well, I spoke to Carrefour's CSR uh, manager as well, and um, when I spoke to her, it, I got the impression that it was less to do with environmental problems and more to do with the simple fact that they would, um, it was a customer-focused decision, she said. So they're trying to serve their customers better and... Uh, it sounds like the demand from their customers was not for Pangasius, so that's why they've stopped doing it, basically. But similarly, and, and maybe she was talking about like a local approach, a local approach to things. So in their stores in Asia, for example, they will probably still sell it because there's a bigger demand in Asia for Pangasius than there is in Europe. Well, and that indicates oh. a lower demand on the consumer side as well. And sure, um, I, I think that uh, it would. The, the schools uh, in Spain that kind of I think is more concerned because that indicates once that ball gets rolling, uh, once parents start to be concerned about Pegasus and it gets off school menus, for example, that could be pretty big. And I, I got a call uh, about that, and apparently there's been there was at one point an initiative to get Pegasus onto the uh, or at least similar sustainably farmed white. Uh, so I think that that is probably going to be in jeopardy, but I think that's probably going to be more important to watch. Yeah, I agree. Because it's, a, it's so, a fairly inexpensive white fish, isn't it? So it's, it's good for things like schools and I don't know, hospitals, stuff like that. So yeah. how, how much of the criticism is deserved uh, on Vietnam side? Is this... You know, Drew talked about fake news in, in one of his columns this week. And, I mean, Dom, do you get a sense that the industry in Vietnam feels it needs to really address some of these concerns? Or is this kind of just being blown out of proportion? I think it's a bit of both, really, from what I can gather. I think uh, there's a lot of farms out there that are getting certified by the air. I think it's fair, to, it's fair to say that if a farmer is satisfied by the AC, it's in pretty good shape. Um, but I think there's also a lot that aren't certified yet, and there's probably a reason for that. Mm. So, who knows? I think it, but it does seem like it's a bit unfair on the industry. Because, I, I, like I say, especially in Europe, most of it is ASE certified products and there is plenty of that so it, it can't really be used as an excuse from what I understand. I mean this this could be a natural part of sort of rationalizing out the Pegasus sector because there's no question that it, it's grown in an incredibly fast way over the past decade uh, and, and even within Vietnam even the associations that uh, VASA and others that have been involved in it have said wow this is growing way too fast so um, Kim on the other side of the ocean, the U.S. Uh, and Pangasius imports have been facing a, a, a looming crisis, and you, you wrote about that uh, this week as well. So tell us a little bit about that, about the switch to uh, to USDA inspection. It's highly complicated, but um, essentially we're looking at September being kind of a, a red-letter month for whether or not Pangasius can continue to come into the States. Is that the the right way to characterize it? 
Uh, yes and no. Um, so pretty much September 1st, all foreign governments that are looking to export to the U.S., well, particularly in this case, Vietnam, need to submit an application to USDA um, showing that their regulatory system is equal to ours, to the USDA regulations. And what you said before about how much Pangasia has grown, um, in my article, I had stats on how much volume the U.S. was importing of frozen Pangasius fillets from Vietnam, and back in 2009, it was only 38 metric tons, and then that shot up to 84 metric tons in 2011, and then last year we imported 136,000 metric tons of frozen Pangasius fillets. Of the total catfish and Pangasius that we import, 96% comes from Vietnam, so this country is definitely trying to get everything in order by September 1st. Um, it pretty much has to have a list of eligible companies that are going to abide by USDA regulations that are in compliance, and they also have to show several other documentations, such as um, HACCP, sanitation control procedures, chemical testing. But the reason why I say yes, they have to submit all this by September 1st, but also no, because after they submit it, it seems like the process doesn't just end right there. They don't get cut off September 1st. There's a whole process that happens after that in terms of the USDA reviewing the documents. There's an open dialogue back and forth between the US and Vietnam, followed by the US actually going over there, doing an audit, more discussion. Finally, it goes to a final ruling with an open comment period. So it does seem like it will take some time after September 1st until we find out the official stamp of whether or not Vietnam gets the thumbs up or thumbs down to export their Pangasius to the U.S. I mean, this is straight up protectionism, right? I mean, is that the best way to, to, to think about this? There's a lot of opposition among lawmakers out there. Um, Senator John McCain, there's a lot of associations against it. NFI, they're all saying that it's pretty much a waste of tax dollars and moving it from the FDA to USDA was just duplicating something that's already in place and working. So, John, this is, uh, I know that protectionism is one of the issues that you've written about over the years, both uh, with Gulf Shrimp and with catfish uh, farmers in the U.S. This week you wrote uh, a column that elicited a lot of feedback. Yeah, I'll, I'll just start with the catfish one because... Um, you know, the catfish, the U.S. catfish industry is um, arguably the shining star of our aquaculture universe here in the U.S. And, and uh, it's been in, you know, consistent decline for quite a while. And Parangasis came in and just whipped it uh, overnight. And the reaction from the catfish industry is to now go after them with regulation and, and stuff like that. And, uh, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand why the U.S. industry can't get out of its own way. It has the biggest seafood market in the world right at its doorstep. So that's one thing that bothers me. Um, I think one of the big things that bothers me, and when we were at the NFI conference uh, a month ago or whenever it was, 
we heard it again, and we hear this all the time. There's three things consumers uh, that bother consumers and force them to avoid seafood. They don't know how to cook it, it smells up the house, and they don't know how to buy it. I've been hearing this ever since I began to write about seafood, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why we don't do something about it. It's the blueprint for solving the obstacles to boosting consumption, and we, we talk about it. We talk about it all the time. Eh, yeah, they don't like to cook it. They don't know how. Whatever, you know. But we don't do anything about it. So. Yeah, I mean, those are two of the major things. I mean, the other the other thing is, and this goes hand in hand, in hand with the yeah, consumer thing, is, you know, we have major U.S. seafood companies, but none of them, and I mean pretty much none of them, are very good at marketing, consumer marketing, or product development. And you see it in these new product contests uh, at the show, or whether it's a Symphony of Salmon, whatever it may be, there's just... There just doesn't seem to be a lot of wow coming out from a product development and a marketing point of view, and I find that unfortunate. Yeah, and I wonder if it's just, I mean, just, I always have that question, is it just not having the right staff? Is it still being in that kind of commodity mentality, so why it hasn't been addressed more? Because I think to get to that next level, the, the industry is going to have to see more value adding, more innovative products. And when you're that clear about what you need to overcome, when you're that clear about what the problems are, you would think that uh, the solutions would be fairly obvious. Uh, on the other hand, is uh, are we barking up the wrong tree? Is seafood what it is? You know, um, I mean, it's not that there aren't value added products in the market. There's some very good ones. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is all it could be, and maybe we should start asking that question a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, let's let's just quickly talk, uh, Dominic, about um, the UK uh, retail stats. Nielsen just put out some, um, and I, I segue to that just because in the UK, the wet fish counter has really kind of gone away. Is that fair to say? I mean, they're, they're still there, but in general, it's really more mat packs, boneless, fairly easy and ready to prepare, which isn't isn't the norm in the U.S. Yeah, I'd say that's completely true. I mean, they still exist, obviously. Um, the sort of fish counters and, and that, but I would say that most products of what you buy is in the, the chilled section where things like saucy fish and, and what have you, where it's all ready to eat, ready to cook, you know, foolproof, basically, you just um, whack it in the oven and done. So yeah, I'd say that's probably what's driving it. I mean, the Nielsen stats, yeah, they, they show how the chilled category is leading the entire seafood category. Yeah, and, and I wonder too if that's giving some price, uh, if that's that's taking away this uh, consumer resistance to price because that was one thing that jumped out was that salmon spend went up and consumers were okay with it. Yeah, it seems that uh, increase in salmon prices hadn't really affected, hadn't really hit the market yet. It was, it was a difficult one. Um, but yeah, it seems like people are still buying, well, smoked salmon was a good example of prices actually going up, um, but uh, so did volumes and sales. People were still buying it regardless. But yeah, in general, it seemed like the 
actual price per kilo was lower than the year before. You, you know, the, the wet counter, if you will, in the U.S., the typical seafood counter in uh, any supermarket, I mean, it's a money loser. Uh, not everyone, but the average one, more, the majority of them, actually. Money loser, um, hard to handle, a lot of labor. Um, they just they just don't work. They, they really do not work. There are some people who can do it well, and, and that's fine, but... It's time to transition away from that. I think you can still have a seafood department, so to speak, but as Dom was saying, you know, in Europe, it's a lot of it's a lot of map and stuff that you can just pick up, kind of get a price in your mind, say, oh, that's you know, that's not too much for dinner. Yeah, I'll grab it and go. As opposed to, hey, yeah, I need uh, salmon for uh, my dinner tonight. How many people? I oh, I don't know. Two. I don't know how much to get. You know, I mean, that's it's just too much for people. Yeah, there's some, something interesting as well on that uh, that I was talking to someone about today. That um, apparently in, in Germany, I think you mentioned Globus. Um, they their fish counters. They have people standing on like the other side, like the consumer side. Uh, so they sort of tempt people in, as it were, and sort of just help them choose from that side of the counter as opposed to. Uh, just wait on the other side for you to order something, which I thought was quite seafood. Seafood valet right there. Oh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah but, I mean, but, but there's my uh, point exactly, Dom. It's a good. It, I, it's very interesting. You have to go so far to get people to. I mean, nobody's going to do that with beef or chicken, right? Oh, come look at this beautiful chicken, you know? Yeah, right. You have to go like. Ten steps more just to tr- hopefully capture somebody strolling by, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we wrote about this a few weeks ago about Whole Foods changing over to their kind of chilled uh, 365 strategy there. And what's interesting is you look at their their uh, their wet fish counter, and it's pretty lonely. And I found that kind of interesting, at least in my local Whole Foods. Um, that there's, uh, there's, it's not loaded with fish. They're not stacked one on top of the other. It's focused. It seems um, almost like the you know, the restaurants that have the plastic versions of the food out there. It's like they pick the very best fillets, the very best looking fish, and have them on ice. Um, and then it maybe they're encouraging people to move over to that chill where there's going to be less shrink. But, you know, I, I personally think if a retailer really made that dive and really replaced that counter with a really nice chilled counter where they could reduce, uh, reduce shrink, and it just looks so good when you have those skin packs. I mean, it really, really looks good. And then, like we say, when you have two loins in a pack, you know what you're getting. You don't have to think how much you need. It's right there. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering who might take that jump here in the States, and maybe it's Whole Foods that's going to lead it, but, um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good, yeah, I mean, they, they have one foot in each boat right now, and you see it more and more, you know, but I think you're right, I think you have to still keep it a seafood department, because otherwise what they try and do is they blend it in with the meat and the chicken, and it's kind of like, it's the kind of almost kid, you know, it's, he's almost there, but he's not quite there, and uh, it, it's it's it doesn't work. So, and one one thing about Whole Foods, real quick, one thing I see is their fresh case 
is a lot more focused on seasonal uh, flow of seafood. Yeah. So, you know, they bring in obviously what's what's in season, and they really that that's what they try and push through the fresh case, at least the ones around me. So I, I like that idea. You know, that that's kind of cool. But I agree with you. I think somebody's got to cut over hard to the uh, European style and give it a go. Well, on that. No, that's interesting because if you think about it, the, as I already mentioned, saucy fish, um, but they are now in the US, are they, doing their thing? And also, youngs we know now are going to be in Boston trying to grow their presence in the US, so maybe the Europeans are coming over to the US to, to teach you how to do it. Well, we need help right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. But um, on kind of a positive note, I guess, I guess positive note, U.S. seafood imports were up. John, do you think this heralds another rise in seafood consumption? You know, it, it, it definitely could. I mean, the, the big species, you know, saw increases for the most part. And as we know, they, they carry the day. So um, if indeed that manifests when the numbers come out uh, later this fall, that would be, I believe, the fifth year of uh, increases, which, you know, one thing I was complaining about in my column was, you know, seafood consumption has been flat for you know, decades, five decades or whatever it may be. But uh, it, it's still flat. I mean, it, it, we, we just keep vacillating between this 14 and 16 pound range. But, you know, you got to be a little hard to see four or five years in a row of rising consumption. I mean, the question will be, can it keep going and start to break new milestones, you know, break barriers? And that um, that's unknown right now, obviously. So. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the stars uh, of U.S. seafood imports has been tilapia. And we can talk a bit about that, and we can uh, admit that we were wrong, or at least we were looking in the wrong place, John. I looked at fake news in uh, seafood. It's fake news is kind of one of the catchphrases now of the Trump administration. But it's not just, uh, I mean, it, it dives down into so many different ways. And I went on Facebook and started looking around because, as we said, it really didn't hit the mainstream media, this idea that something was wrong with tilapia. And so we were kind of going, oh, what? Where, where, what's that? Well, on, on Facebook, um, I was shocked to see how many negative posts there were. And, and what I found really, really interesting was that it was the same story posted over and over and over, unsourced, and, and definitely with a headline that was designed to get people to go to these sites. You would, you would travel to those sites. You would get pop-ups to sign up to, uh, to get information on products. I mean, clearly... There was a motive behind this. It wasn't to, you know, elect a a president, but it was certainly to drive people to uh, those sites. So I'm curious, from from your perspective, the three of you and Tim, you probably use Facebook more than anybody else here. I'm not calling you old, dumb, but I'm calling myself old, and I'm, I'm calling John old. But I mean, how big of a problem is this when you see these stories? rolling out and I mean what should the industry be doing to 
to combat it. Is there anything that can be done? Well, I mean, the hard thing is I am noticing the younger generations, that's where they're getting their news. They're not, you know, watching news networks. They're not going to news sites online. They're just getting it through Facebook. And to them, that's that's the truth. They don't really question it, I don't feel. And you do see an impact. Um, last year, the amount of tilapia that we imported fell by 12% in volume and in value, it fell by 23% compared to 2015. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a massive drop. And uh, I, I don't know the, the answer to it. Um, I can only point out the problem right now. Uh, but I got a lot of feedback from the industry that, that I, I think they are now going to be thinking about how to combat this. And I don't know if that means getting a crisis PR agency. I don't certainly. I think engaging with comments or things like that is a waste of time. Um, but it's concerning. These people that are posting it, I mean, they have millions of followers. In aggregate, the people that posted uh, this one particular fake story that was posted over the course of about two years, the, the followers those people had, you're talking in the millions, I mean multi-millions, probably three, four, five million followers in aggregate of these people that posted. That's a lot of people. And the common thread was that these were health and wellness sites. So these are probably people that are shopping at Whole Foods, shopping at maybe natural food stores, or they're very active people. Um, they're kind of the thought leaders in a way for people that want to be healthier. So I don't know. And Dom, I'm assuming you're seeing the same thing in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah you do see that quite a lot. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is either. I, I, I'm sure there is a, an easy answer. But um, what concerns me is that people don't, I mean, they are normally quite outrageous headlines that why people don't question it more. And maybe that is where the industry could do something. I don't, I don't know. Just sort of, you know, maybe push the facts a little bit harder than they do or refute these claims when they come out a bit harder, but yeah, why people just blindly listen to these, these stories, I don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, I, I think it's really, really a complex problem. Well, I think to, can I weigh in just for a quick sec? I think what's troubling, uh, and you, you reference it in that column, which was excellent, um, it could happen to any fish, you know, it's right now it's tilapia, and to some degree, pangasius, right? I mean, and the problem with this, to me, is tilapia is like the perfect fish for the American palate, right? It's, it's white, it's bland, you can sauce it up and give it whatever flavor you want. That's the kind of fish Americans like. It's generally. also got a great sustainability story. It's got a great sustainability story. But this is the one they knock down, you know, significantly. Well... Geez, Louise, if they can knock down the, the one that is perfect for the market, I mean, I don't think any any other species is probably uh, immune to this. So, you know, that's, that's troubling. As to what you do, I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm always a fan of marketing. I, I still believe there should be some broad industry marketing effort, um, but there isn't. So we don't control the debate, and, you know, bloggers – 
doing this kind of stuff have control and you know look where they drove the car well I think we'll wrap it up there uh, that is going to be it for this episode uh, thanks John Dominic and Kim for, for joining Hi, just a reminder that we have our New York City Seafood Investor Forum coming up on May 23rd at the W Hotel. If you haven't been to our events before, you really should. We have incredible speakers, incredible panels, Green Harvest, Cargo, Clearwater, American Seafoods, Cook, Cisco, Darden, Icicle, you name it. Uh, we've had uh, just an incredible lineup in the past, and I'm expecting we'll have a better one coming up in New York City. Uh, on the investment side, Really top-tier investors uh, attend our events. Uh, people like Bain Capital, Primera, QT, Amera. This year's uh, New York Investor Forum is brought to you by Pareto Securities. And if you want to learn more about it, go to www.intrafishevents.com. We have early bird specials going, and you can look at photo galleries and download presentations from past forums. Uh, remember that you can find uh, real news uh, on interfish.com and you can get our newsletters there. Uh, and also, you can find us on all the social media platforms as well Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. So, thanks everyone, and we'll talk to you next time.